so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Um, Brent, talk for a second. I mean, I know, I know that our our FaceTime feed is off, but is our audio feed completely off too? It seems like the audio feed is in real time. It does seem like that. You don't think the audio feed is synced up, Lindsay, or you think it's audio feed seems fine. FaceTime feed is way off. I know, but Lindsay, there will. This has now happened twice where I've said something and I've started to say something and then you just start talking and don't stop. <laughs> Lindsay so frequently making... waits for like the person to totally stop talking for the silence to happen and then for herself to like pick up the conversation. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester and with me on the podcast today are my co-host Lindsay Nicolay. Hello. And Brent Leatherwood. Good afternoon, compadres. Guys, I've got to tell you, it feels good to be back. Uh, we are wrapping up a long stretch of Supreme Court rulings coming down. We'll be talking about that a lot on the podcast today. We're also going to talk to a special guest, uh, Travis Wusso, who runs our D.C. office at the URLC, and we're excited to talk to him. But guys, before we even get into it and turn it over to Lindsay, I just want to say thanks uh, to all of the listeners who have taken the time to leave us ratings and reviews uh, in their podcast apps. Uh, those things have been coming in and the numbers have been going up, and it's been very cool. We've heard from a lot of, uh, we've gotten a lot of good feedback there, but I've also heard from a lot of folks who've been listening to the podcast over the last few months. And uh, the feedback has been really, really encouraging. One of the things that was surprising to me is the fact that uh, apparently not a, you know, there are a lot of listeners who don't listen to this necessarily in real time. So it comes out every Friday, but sometimes they'll listen to it, uh, you know, days afterward and sometimes weeks after the initial uh, episode aired, which is totally fine. But I've had people send me emails and even uh, friends of mine say like, hey, that thing that you guys talked about was so awesome and it was like three or four weeks ago that we talked about it. i can't even remember what it was so anyway it's been good to get some good feedback from the podcast and we're excited to get into it today so Lindsay, tell us what the erlc is talking about this week before we get to our content on erlc.com i just want to take a minute and let listeners know about our two newsletters that we have highlights and the weekly you can go to our website at erlc.com and scroll down to the stay connected bar there you can choose highlights or the weekly or both enter your name and your email and hit the subscribe button okay so first up there's been a lot of talk about monuments in our society and which ones should remain which ones should come down so we had Rashawn Frost write about this he's a pastor in South Carolina and um um, he kind of just gives us a firsthand look on the ground and a look into how he's thinking about these things. And he 
he talks about, well, his article is titled, What is the Difference Between Remembering History and Celebrating Division? So he talks about the difference between types of memorials or monuments that are meant set up to remember history and those that are put up in order to celebrate division. Specifically, he's referring to a a lot of these Confederate monuments and memorials. And um, just a couple of quotes that he has here in his piece that I thought were really good. Um, You know, he says, I'm not advocating for a slippery slope of taking down historical monuments. Instead, this is a call to evaluate what these monuments are memorializing and whether or not they denigrate our fellow human beings. And of course, that really is the point. Are these set, are these monuments set up in order to remind certain individuals that they are worth less than others, which is of course not true. Um, He also says this, As we examine today's moment, we have to understand that many of these statues, monuments, and flags have become attachments of the heart that divide not only society, but the body of Christ along racial lines. That is so good. And uh, knowing Rashawn, he is a a PhD student at Southeastern Seminary. He is, uh, as you mentioned, a a black pastor in the city of Charleston, which has uh, not only experienced the kinds of like social, uh, you know, racial division and instances of racism, but literally have you know, born witness to an awful, awful uh, tragedy with the shooting that took place at Mother Emanuel Church. And so for Rashawn, this is something that is personal. It's in his community. Uh, and, you know, th- this is a powerful reflection that I'm really glad that he offered. And uh, we need more people like Rashawn who are able to help us think carefully about these things. What I appreciate uh, about this piece is the nuance that he provides, the, the difference in um, remembering our history versus valorizing it. And, you know, here in Tennessee this week, this has purchase uh, for what we're watching at our state capitol in Nashville. There is a bust of a Confederate general, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who who did, I mean, by any measurement, infamous things uh, during his time, both as a Confederate general and then afterwards. Things that both added to the division in our nation at that time and things that terrorized uh, African Americans uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war. And here this bust is in a place of prominence. It is a very high-profile location. You can actually not enter the State House chamber without passing this. And honestly, I, I've, I've just thought more and more about this. And if, if, if I were a black individual going into uh, the House of Representatives to either represent constituents or if I were um, a, a citizen who wanted to watch the deliberations, I can't imagine what sort of signal that would send to me. I mean, it sends a, a shudder down my spine as a white citizen. And I just think about um, my fellow African-American citizens. And I just, I lament the fact that this bust is is placed in this location. And so this week, uh, Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee came out and said it needs to be removed and placed in the Tennessee State Museum uh, for historic purposes. Uh, it doesn't deserve a, a place like this. Um, and I, I agree with that. And I, I'm thankful that this piece, we, we ran it this week um, because there's a lot of these types of conversations that are happening around the country right now. You know, and these conversations are good for me because whether or not I paid attention in history class or whatever it was, um, some of these things I was just not aware of. So it's a good, it's a good education for me, the call to re-examine and reevaluate 
has awakened me to look more into the history of our nation. And so um, I'm grateful for these conversations. I'm not always grateful for the way they play out on social media, but among friends and and brothers and sisters and fellow citizens, um, some good things are happening. So moving on, we have a piece by Heather Rice Minus of the great organization Prison Fellowship. And I think this uh, this piece hits not close to home per se, but this past week, my husband and I watched Just Mercy for the first time. And oh my word, oh, if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. But um, Heather gives us a call to pray for those in prison during the pandemic. And so she gives um, a story of what some of the prisoners are going through. It's very isolated um, when you're struggling with COVID. It spreads easily. Family members and friends aren't able to visit prisoners, um, but they give some practice practical guides on how to pray. They have a a regularly updated map of how COVID is uh, impacting prisons in each state. They have a resource showing how many and through what mechanisms people have been released. And then they put together a guide for how you can pray for prisoners and staff and their families during this crisis. So it's much needed. And we're just very thankful for Prison Fellowship. And then finally, um, this kind of fits in our culture section as well, but we have a piece by our co-host, Josh Wester, on a very important issue. It's titled, Why Christians Should Care About the Latest Step in the Sexual Revolution. And you might be surprised by the latest step, but uh, it has been uh, the recognizing or the recognition of polyamory uh, in Massachusetts. So Josh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the uh, this was one of those things that was probably flying under the radar for most people. But uh, last week, the New York Times reported that the city of Somerville, which is uh, by according to the reporting, a left leaning city in Massachusetts, and it, it seems that way uh, based on what happened. But at a recent city council meeting, their city council voted to recognize uh, polyamorous relationships, to legally recognize polyamorous relationships, and to grant them the same benefits that are afforded uh, to married couples. This is Something that uh, is about much more, though, than trying to open up some kind of legal loopholes or even to allow them to do things like share insurance benefits or to uh, have, you know, visitation uh, abilities if someone were in the hospital or something like that. Truthfully, this is about once again expanding the definition of marriage. And so I wrote this piece talking about uh, how this is something that that Christians should not only like be grieved over, but that they should oppose because we think that uh, further degrading the institution of marriage in our society is bad for everyone. It's bad for our society. It's bad for our children. And this is something that we have to do more than just lament, but we actually should engage. That's right, Josh. And I'm glad for the way that you and others Um, at the ERLC are engaging these issues um, and the way that the church, everyday Christians are engaging these issues through simply living their lives in a way that promotes what God says is best. And, you know, as believers, we have theological reasons for why we hold to um, what God in his word has given us as the definition of marriage, what that points to. But even if you you look at this from an outside perspective as a non-Christian, and especially as me as uh, a child of divorce and then um, being a mother myself, I just look at the just the detriment to 
like Josh said, society, to people, to families, and to children, especially in the midst of such convoluted situations. Um, And so at the ERLC, we will continue to advocate for God's um, design for marriage because, again, it is best. And um, it may not feel best to those who oppose it, but we know that what God says is best. And so we will continue to hold fast to that and to advocate for it. So there's a lot going on um, in society this week, as is just the nature of 2020 in general, a lot going on. Um, But Josh and Brent, that is your look at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And Brent, that takes us to the culture section for the week. And as we've already mentioned, there's a lot going on in the world of culture this week. So tell us what's going on. Well, I'll pick up with uh, where Lindsay kind of left off with ERLC content, uh, because this was the close of the Supreme Court term this week. There are a lot of resources now available. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There are a lot of resources now available on ERLC.com explaining all that's gone on from a religious liberty perspective at the Supreme Court this term. And believe you me, there was a lot. And probably its apex happened this week on Wednesday with the release of two major Supreme Court decisions. So let's start by talking about the most prominent case that was released this week, um, the Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, decision. The justices, according to Baptist Press, reiterated their support for a ministerial exception that enables churches and other religious bodies to hire and let go of people based on their beliefs. They had ruled unanimously in 2012 in favor of such an exception. In the consolidated cases that were considered, Catholic schools in California chose not to renew the contracts for two fifth-grade teachers based on what they said was poor performance. Those teachers then sued, and that's how we got this case. What's noteworthy is that our team filed an amicus brief, which is known as a friend of the court brief to the court, to help further explain our rationale for supporting the ministerial exception. And guess what? What, Brent? In the majority opinion, written by Justice Samuel Alito, he actually cited the ERLC amicus brief, which is, it's not the first time that it's happened, but it's a really uh, unique moment, and it speaks to the quality of the work that the ERLC does uh, in regards to religious liberty and, and defending religious liberty. That's right, Brent. And this was, you know, this was not a small thing. This was a major ruling and a huge win for religious liberty because uh, what the court did is that they affirmed that churches and religious organizations or institutions have the right to determine who they hire and that they can continue to not only operate, but to staff their institutions, organizations, according to their beliefs, and that the government doesn't have the right to step in and to arbitrate those things. That because of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious freedom protections, that these religious institutions, once again, you know, the Supreme Court telling us this, uh, that they're able to uh, continue to be truly Christian or operate truly according to whatever their religious commitments are. And that is vital uh, because otherwise, had this ruling gone the other way, who knows what would have been the future, not only for Christian schools, but for schools of all kinds or other kinds of religious institutions. And in the second case that dealt with the Little Sisters of the Poor, yes, they are back in front of the Supreme Court again. This has now been a seven-year journey uh, from Little Sisters of the Poor coming before the court multiple times. But once again, the court ruled in their favor. And in many ways, it was kind of along these same lines. The court ruled that employers with religious objections can be exempt 
from the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate. And again, from the story in Baptist Press, the high court upheld federal rules that protect the rights of employers with religious or moral objections to the Obama-era abortion contraception mandate. Uh, The opinion came after, as I said, a seven-year legal battle. Uh, And now the Catholic Catholic Order, Little Sisters of the Poor, they serve poverty-stricken elderly. I mean, this is... This is not a group that you want to continually sue, Uh, and the Supreme Court has said once more uh, that they are free to follow their consciences in regards to the Affordable Care Act. And that, again, is a win for religious liberty, and the ERLC filed an amicus brief here in this case as well. Yeah, we've seen over and over again that you don't mess with the Little Sisters. So I've been impressed um, with their fortitude, and the ERLC has been thankful to be standing alongside them all of these years. And, you know, I'm just curious as an outsider who doesn't have great understanding of these things and how um, these different laws apply to society just because, I don't know, I'm not a a legal scholar like y'all are, um, how these rulings in the future will affect the Bostock ruling and what that will indeed look like and how that will play out. You know who we should ask about that, Lindsay? Travis, when we have him on in just a few minutes, because he's the you know true legal expert at the ERLC and can answer those questions for us. Uh, I just wanted to point out before we move on, our uh, former colleague, Dan Darling, had maybe the best take on uh, the Little Sisters ruling yesterday, where he basically said, uh, I think the one thing that is certain is it's not a good idea to sue nuns. And I thought that was exactly right. We've seen the Little Sisters uh, in court for, you know, uh, basically eight years fighting this battle over being forced to provide contraceptives that that their religious beliefs will not allow them to provide. They've been locked in this legal battle back and forth and been at the Supreme Court now multiple times. And, you know, how thankful we are to be able to celebrate with them and to see this victory handed down yesterday. And I want to point out, uh, Dr. Moore, our, our president, he commented with just a, a great quote uh, about this case and, and why it, it applies for all of us. So, I mean, obviously, as we've talked about the Little Sisters, they're Catholic. We at the ROC, we're, we're not. Um, but this is what Dr. Moore said uh, in relation to that. Wendy not agree with the sisters on their theological or moral beliefs to recognize that a free country should allow them to serve without state harassment. These joyful nuns can now serve the poor without fear that Uncle Sam will try to be their pope. For all Americans, whatever our views, this is good news. And honestly, the rulings that came yesterday were good news. As a matter of fact, uh, one of our co-laborers out there that works for uh, the Beckett Fund, which is a nonprofit entity that represents uh, a lot of religious institutions in cases much like this, Uh, One of their attorneys, Luke Goodrich, actually pointed out that religious liberty is on a 15-0 winning streak at the Supreme Court dating back multiple years. And uh, that's just further proof that the the court is actually uh, carving out a robust view of religious liberty in American jurisprudence. And that's something that we all should be very grateful for. I think that's exactly right, Brent. Like, it is a really good... uh thing that we've seen these uh, rulings at the Supreme Court over and over again affirm religious liberty. Ryan Anderson, in response to Luke's tweet yesterday, also did point out uh, that it is a little troubling that we've had to see 15 cases uh, answering some of these fundamental religious liberty questions rise to the Supreme Court uh, in the last decade or so. But 
nonetheless, it is still something to celebrate and be thankful for that each of them have been uh, clear wins supporting the you know fundamental or bedrock protections for religious freedom we find in the First Amendment. That's correct. Both of those cases were decided by seven to two decisions, and those came out on Wednesday. On Thursday of this week, the court also weighed in on a case that a number of political watchers out there have been paying attention to uh, in regards to the financial records of President Trump. So the court came out again with a seven to two decision and uh, said that Congress uh, is not going to be able to access uh, President Trump's tax records and financial records, but that a secret grand jury uh, subpoena may, in fact, uh, have access to them. The U.S. Supreme Court gave President Donald Trump a chance to beat back House Democrats' efforts to obtain his financial records, but ruled he is not immune from the Manhattan District Attorney's attempt to get his taxes. Uh, So that's what NBC News is reporting about this decision. And it will be interesting to see what sort of effect that happens on the investigation that's taking place in New York. Speaking of the administration, so it was learned this week that foreign students could be forced to leave the United States if colleges move online. So we're talking about individuals who are here for higher education purposes. In response to that, both Harvard and MIT have sued the Trump administration over that rule, barring students, foreign students, from taking online classes only. So the administration's position is, if you're an international student and you're here to take classes at a college, if that college moves to online learning only, those foreign students uh, need to return to their places of origin. Uh, So this is setting up what is a very interesting legal fight and one that I'm sure a lot of legal eagles, as well as political uh, folks, will be watching play out over the course of the next few weeks. But since we're in the politics section, one thing that caught everybody by surprise was rapper Kanye West announcing his run for president of the United States in 2020. Yeah, I might be the only uh, part of weird Christian Twitter that is just not excited about Kanye potentially throwing his hat in the ring in 2020. I think that there's enough, you know, absolute madness and chaos going on in our world right now. And I think he should, you know, keep keep doing his thing, but leave politics. There's enough people running in those lanes right now. And I would just say, maybe maybe find something else to do. I just want to see the list of potential justices he would appoint. Well, and you know, it's important. Elon Musk says he might endorse him. No, that's right. As a matter of fact, on Twitter, Elon Musk became his first high-profile endorsement, and I thought that would get kind of the Josh Westerwing uh, of the constituency out there, but apparently not. I got to say, that that does all kinds of things to conflict me in my spirit, but I'm I'm still, you know, I'm still not on uh, Team Kanye. So I'm sitting here scrolling through Kanye's Twitter I was trying to look for his announcement because he's been saying some weird stuff, but he just says weird stuff in general. But this this one is, I'm so proud of my beautiful wife, Kim Kardashian West, for officially becoming a billionaire. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm sorry my husband can't be proud of me. (laughs) <laughs> for my accomplishments in that in that arena. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It would make but 2020 even crazier. You're right. It, it would only add to the craziness that is 2020. So, yeah, a, a lot of folks that, that I respect that are uh, political analysts have noted that apparently uh, Mr. West has 
a new album that potentially will be dropping uh, soon. And so they're saying, because he's, he's a marketing genius, he knows how to capture people's attention. And in the midst of an election year, what better way to capture people's attention than by announcing an unexpected run for the highest office in the land? If you ask me, it's actually pure genius. I will gladly give Kanye all the credit for being ha- being one who knows how to uh, grab a hold of the news cycle and gain a lot of attention. I just, uh, I'll be interested to see where this goes. That's right. Well, uh, picking up off something that Lindsay said, um, one of the more interesting uh, things that uh, Kanye West said this week in interviews is that if a vaccine for coronavirus were offered, he wouldn't take it because it potentially would be the mark of the beast. So I'm going to use that as a segue to actually t- talk about uh, coronavirus. Uh, the BBC. Uh, I feel like I should interrupt you, Brent, just to three... definitively say that if you if there is a coronavirus vaccine, which God willing there will be soon, it is definitively and certainly not the mark of the beast. And y- if you're able to, you should avail yourself of that vaccine. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And my point was. We're going to need it uh, because uh, the BBC announced this week that we have crossed uh, another um, very sad milestone. Three million people have now tested positive in the United States for COVID-19. And that is according to uh, the Johns Hopkins University tracker uh, that a lot of folks are paying attention to. And unfortunately, very sadly, over 131,000 deaths have been reported as of the the middle of this week. And on Tuesday, the U.S. broke its record for the most new cases reported in one day because we crossed 60,000 cases in one day, which is a shame. But again, it speaks to the need of a vaccine. We, we, We clearly need that. And we are so thankful that researchers and medical experts are doing all they can, probably working grueling hours and at a grueling pace uh, to, to deliver that uh, to private citizens. One private citizen who spoke up this week was Lindsey Nicolay's favorite, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks gave an interview to CNN this week, and he said, wear a mask. Quote, the idea of doing one's part should be so simple, the 63-year-old actor said in his first TV interview since recovering from COVID-19. Wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands. That alone means you are contributing to the betterment of your house, your work, your town, your society as a whole. And it's such a small thing. I thought this was good advice from America's favorite actor. This is for the good of your neighbor. And it is a small price to pay in the midst of the suffering that some are experiencing. And so it, it just is a way for us to die to ourselves and die to our rights and our pride and um, just serve our, our society well and seek the good of our community. So that's the end of my little rant, my tamed down rant here on our podcast. Well, I think his advice is really salient because of what we learned this week about Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. So she has been, she's gained a lot of prominence. As a matter of fact, there are rumors that she is on Vice President Joe Biden's uh, short list to be a potential vice presidential nominee uh, for the Democratic ticket. But she actually tested positive for coronavirus this week, and she has shown uh, very few symptoms. As a matter of fact, she attributed them to allergies. What tipped her off 
was this. Uh, I just received my results. My husband literally has been sleeping since Thursday last week, which is just not like him. So I decided that we should all get tested and her results came back positive. So apparently one of the signs of this is extreme fatigue and um, extra sleep. And that's, that's what her husband had. And that's what tipped her off to it. So obviously she was very concerned. But again, I think that just speaks to a lot of times you may not even know if you have this, which is why you should take the step of wearing a mask to love your neighbor well. This week in pop culture, we learned that country music lost one of its biggest names. Country Music Hall of Famer Charlie Daniels, uh, he, he lost his life this week to a stroke. And fans of country music around the globe uh, were very sad. As a matter of fact, folks here in Wilson County, when Charlie Daniels uh, was, was brought home, they lined the streets uh, to welcome him back to his home uh, over in Wilson County. Yeah, it was really sad, Brent, to uh, to see Charlie Daniels die. It's just we're in the middle of a year where it just feels like every loss, every bad thing is hard. I'm still struggling uh, in, in a weird way over the fact that, you know, earlier during the coronavirus, I know Charlie Daniels died of a stroke and not necessarily coronavirus, but earlier during this time, like uh, Joe Diffie died and he's another like country music legend that's somebody that's, that I've just grew up listening to. And so, I don't know, it's just been a hard year and it's just sad. That's right. It absolutely is sad. One thing that folks are pinning a lot of their hopes on are sports and the return of sports. So we got some somewhat good news this week. Uh, Major League Soccer returned. You know, no fans were there, but ESPN broadcast uh, the first matches and they had placed a number of microphones around uh, the stadium to to kind of give a sense of the actual play that was going on. But then we learned this week that the Ivy League has become the first Division I conference to cancel all of their fall sports, including football. That's noteworthy because football is generally what brings in revenue for athletic departments around the country, and that's actually what funds a number of sports in both the fall and the spring. And so to see that step taken is honestly probably not a good sign if you are a sports fan. It's true, Brent. What is more quintessential in the fall, well, especially in Tennessee or in the South, per se, than watching football and having game days and making game day food and being able to cheer on your team and dress in your colors? So if we don't have football this year, uh, I mean, I understand it for the sake of um, people's health, but still, it will be a sad and just will continue on track as a bizarre year. The good part of that is that I will not have to listen to the annoying Vol fans at the ERLC talk smack. And just to be clear, you're you're actually talking about Jason Thacker because I don't I don't actually talk smack to you because there's not a whole maybe lot Jason that Thacker, the Tennessee Vols maybe, give me to talk smack towards maybe Brent Leatherwood. <laughs> I know, but y'all are pretty good at talking some smack. So I also do, I also look forward to not hearing the gloating <clears throat> of uh, Alabama fans. I can say oh, that's right for sure, worst. Lindsay. Uh, you know, grow up in I grew up in Eastern North Carolina in ACC country, and we are really good at basketball, but historically not very good at football. Minus uh, Clemson has been on an incredible run uh, for several years. Florida State has had a good football team, but in North Carolina, it's just not. That's just not our sport. So uh, being in the middle of SEC country and having all of these uh, fans of schools with historically good uh, football teams, um, it's something to you know, work in the office of the ERLC. 
All right, so dear colleagues, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague, Travis Wusso. Travis is our vice president and general counsel at the ERLC. He oversees everything that goes on in our DC office. And this is a great week to have him on because as we mentioned, it was a big week at the Supreme Court. But Travis, we want to say thanks so much for joining us. And as we're getting started uh, now, would you just take a second and tell our audience a little bit about how you serve at the ERLC? And if you could tell us one thing that God is teaching you right now in this season of life and ministry. Sure. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's fun to do a crossover episode with my uh, Nashville uh, colleagues. So it's good to be with you guys. In terms of what I I do at ERLC, I mean, you you laid it out pretty well. I I live and work in D.C. and uh, manage our uh, public policy efforts before all three branches of the federal government. Um, as well as our our state work, and then we we do uh, we do quite a bit of international work as well. So I, I work on those types of issues with my fantastic team uh, that's that uh, works uh, and lives in D.C. Uh, in terms of what what God is teaching me right now, um, I feel like I'm I'm going through one of those seasons right now uh, as I'm reading the Word that I'm I'm stopping more often to deal with some of those tough passages that kind of always bothered me, but, you know, you, you never took the time to, you know, do further research or uh, take it to ground. And so right now I, I, I just finished reading the book of Leviticus and, you know, Leviticus has a number of those tough passages, I think we can say. Um, and I can't say that, you know, of course I, I've like answered, you know, all of those questions, but I think the, you know, the big picture thing that God is teaching me right now is that his word is amazing and it, and it's, it's his revelation to us and he wants us to uh, be able to understand it and, um, and understand uh, his heart. And so, you know, it requires us to uh, go below the surface sometimes, but, but that effort is always rewarded. It's a good encouragement, Travis. And, um, you probably needed time in the Word this week after being so busy with the Supreme Court rulings, spinning all the plates, um, because <laughs> as Josh said, it's like the Super Bowl for our team in D.C. So we wanted to start by discussing one of the cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe. So can you tell us about this case and how the court ruled and the implications of that? Yeah, so Our Our Lady of Guadalupe is a case that originates uh, out in California, and it deals with what's known as the ministerial exception, which is a it's a constitutional doctrine, a constitutional idea that, that basically says that courts are not going to get involved and the government cannot get involved in the decisions that religious organizations make about who works for those organizations. Because obviously the people that make up the organization, you know, is <laughs> I mean, is the organization itself. And so for, you know, so for the government to be able to, you know, reach in and, and, and say, you can hire this person or you must hire that person uh, is a way for the government, would be a way for the government to, to basically uh, take control over or uh, meddle in the affairs of religious organizations. And so this, you know, this, this is a, a longstanding constitutional doctrine before Our Lady, the most recent case that dealt with this, 
was uh, was a case called um, Hosanna Tabor, uh, which was a, a unanimous decision that was uh, handed down just a few years ago. And so, Our Lady, in, in some ways, is follow up to Hosanna Tabor. It it uh, you know it it addresses the question in in this case of whether a teacher can be considered uh, a minister. But what the court did in this case is is uh, they they overruled the Ninth Circuit's uh, ruling and. Um, you know, I would say clarified, you know, clarify the parameters of the of the ministerial exception. Uh, what the Ninth Circuit had done uh, in in the opinion that in its opinion that was overruled by the court was had said, you know, there there's a there's a really rigid formula. There's a checklist that an organization has to has to meet in order to demonstrate that a particular person is a minister for the purposes of the ministerial exception. And the Supreme Court said. Um, and and this is actually a, a point where they they cited the brief that, that we submitted in this case. They said no, you we we can't use that kind of rigid formula because because different you know different religions and different Christian denominations even you know deal with the question of of what is a minister in really different ways. So we can't have a rigid test. We can't have a rigid formula. We've got to look at the whole circumstances in each one of these cases. So, Travis, thank you for that explanation. There was another huge religious liberty case this week involving the Little Sisters of the Poor. This has been a years-long saga involving an order of Catholic nuns who are dedicated to serving the elderly poor. Can you tell us a little bit about this case and why uh, folks who are interested in religious liberty should really care about this? Yep. So this this was another you know another uh, significant win, and I, I think it's the little sisters' uh, third win at the Supreme Court. Um, we're hoping that that there won't have to be a fourth, although uh, we can talk about it in a minute. Why you know why there there might be some reason to think that this case is is actually headed back to the Supreme Court. Um, but what this case is about is is what we we refer to as the contraceptive mandate, uh, which was a rule promulgated by the Obama administration in 2011 that said that all health insurance providers uh, had to provide contraception as a part of their uh, their healthcare plans. And so what that meant for, you know, just to use an example, in order of Catholic nuns, is that they would they would have to, as a part of providing contraception uh, through their uh, through their plans, violate their religious you know their sincerely held uh, religious beliefs. And it's worth noting that a number of Baptist institutions also challenged uh, the contraceptive mandate because the contraceptive mandate doesn't cover just contraception, but a, but a number of of uh, of drugs that we would consider to be abortive fashion. So you know that's it's a religious liberty issue. It's also it's also a pro life issue. Uh, as well, and so this iteration of the case dealt with um, two rules that the Department of Health and Human Services uh, passed in 2018 that would, uh, well, that not not that would now now they're in effect that provide a, a an exemption uh, on religious and moral grounds for organizations like ERLC, like Guidestone, and like the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, who have a religious or moral objection uh, to providing contraception, and so, um, or or abortifacients, and so, uh, you know, the these two rules were were uh, implemented, finalized, and then uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, sued the federal government, and that's what this case is really about: is were these two rules are they valid, um, are they legal, and can they go into effect? And what the court held. Uh, in a seven-two decision, is yes, indeed, those those two rules were properly issued, uh, and they will get to go into effect. Well, again, Travis, we are so thankful for um, you spearheading this effort with your team in DC and just all of the ERLC and 
advocating for these things and then seeing such good rulings come down. So, but now we want to leave the United States and want to go across the ocean to another country. So your family lived in Israel for a little bit. So can you tell us something about that? Maybe a story or two, favorite parts, least favorite parts. We just want to we just want to pick your brain about it. Yeah, sure. We we got to live. Uh, we had the great uh, privilege and and fortune to get to live in Jerusalem for uh, about a year and a half, right before we moved uh, to to DC. And it was it was a. I mean, I I think my wife and I might have different answers to the you know question of about how great it was. But you know, it's it's difficult to you know it's difficult to sum up an experience like that. But we. We lived. Uh, one, one of the stories I like to tell is that we we lived in this neighborhood called Musrabra, which is uh, just north of the old city, uh, in between the New Gate and Damascus Gate. If if you've ever visited Jerusalem, and you know we we could see the walls of the old city from our uh, from our apartment. Um, but what's what's interesting about Musrabra is that it was one of those neighborhoods that fell uh, within no man's land before the 1967 uh, Six Day War. So you know on. One side of our street was, you know, a bunch of barbed wire. On the other side of the street um, was a bunch of barbed wire. The Jordanians on one side, the Israelis on the other, um, and so it's it's an interesting neighborhood with a lot of history. Um, but what it also means is that if I would kind of walk to the end of my street and turn right, then it was all Palestinians who were speaking Arabic. If I turned left, then uh, you know we were a couple blocks away from the heart of ultra orthodox. Uh, uh, Jerusalem. And, and so, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways it was, you know, it was a bewildering um, and confusing cultural experience, you know, to be uh, kind of stuck between, you know, stuck between uh, those, you know, those two uh, cultures and, and in some ways those two sides of, uh, those two sides of Jerusalem. But it was a great experience. I developed a, a you know, a deep love and appreciation for uh, hummus and and falafel, which are are two topics that I mean, people in Jerusalem fight about everything, um, but they especially fight about hummus uh, and and falafel. Uh, and I have to say, I think you know, I think the food in the food in Jerusalem and Israel is is one of the things I miss the most. Mm, man, you're making you're making me hungry, Travis. So all right, so we've had a couple of these sort of crossover podcasts where it feels like Batman is coming over to to join Superman uh, and form the Justice League with your DC colleagues. Uh, and we've asked them about, you know, what are some of the things they like to do in our capital city of Washington, DC? But to change things up just a little bit, one thing that you and your wife, Katie, do is CrossFit. You're an avid CrossFitter. Both of y'all are. Uh, we have never had a CrossFitter on the podcast too large. I don't think anybody has, has told us that. So, how did you get into CrossFit? And, and tell us a little bit about your love for this painful exercise regimen. Well, though, I think Lindsay, haven't you tried CrossFit? Oh no, that's right. You were you were concerned about. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Concerned about getting too bulky. Is that is that what it was, Lindsay? Is that why you haven't tried it? Could, or concerned <laughs> about dying, maybe falling <laughs> underneath the tire I was lifting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. My wife and I have both been doing CrossFit for uh, you know for about seven years. We we've got a gym in our neighborhood, and we 
and uh, we love we both really like it. I think it you know for me it helps kind of blow off some steam and and stress. But you know going back to Jerusalem, we my wife actually coached CrossFit when we uh, when we were living in Jerusalem at a gym uh, at a gym there, and you know it was one of those. I think all sports do this, but one of the things that I loved about about doing CrossFit in the Holy Land um, is that as as divided as a, as a as a place like uh, Israel can be on a whole you know whole range of issues. Um, our gym had Israeli members and internationals like us, and as well as uh, a number of Palestinians. And so you know it was one of those it was one of those rare spaces where you know everybody uh, came together, uh, did you know a brutal workout and and suffered together. But also, I think you know, shared something important together, and uh, you know, it forged some really you know deep relationships with people I still keep in touch with uh, and miss tremendously. So, you know, the that's that's the thing I love the most about CrossFit is you know, it's not the workouts, it's it's the community and the friendships that you uh, make along the way. That's really good, Travis. And I um I've never actually done CrossFit formerly. I was disappointed that you didn't use the word box uh, instead of gym because you know apparently there's just all you know, everybody who does CrossFit. There's terminology. It's a culture. There's the whole the whole thing that wraps around it. Uh, but anyway, we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. It was a huge, uh, you know, very busy into the term uh, in terms of Supreme Court rulings, and we know that you are exhausted and ready for uh, some well deserved rest. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us today and. Thank you for all your hard work that you did in fighting to preserve uh, these fundamental freedoms like religious liberty and leading our efforts in the D.C. office. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys having me on. And, you know, and I should say thank you guys for all the hard work that you all did uh, on this stuff as well. I mean, this, you know, it's it's the Super Bowl for the D.C. team, but it's the Super Bowl really for everybody. So, you know, I think it's it was it's one of those really gratifying moments where, you know, you get to see, you know, every member of the team uh, working hard and and uh, and putting out great content. So. Thanks, guys. Good to be working with you guys this week and good to be on the pod this week. Appreciate you, buddy. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. Uh, Brent, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier were the school reopenings, and Johns Hopkins University has come up with another what I think is essential map uh, to track the various school reopenings across the country uh, because it's just going to be so different in each different school district. And so they've got a new school reopening tracker. Uh, folks may remember that they were one of the first ones to come up with a worldwide coronavirus tracker. Well, now they've done it here in America for school reopening. And honestly, it's just really interesting to compare the different states and, and districts uh, with what they're doing. And then the other resource I had was The Atlantic just came up with something I've been wondering about myself. We've seen a spike in cases, uh, especially in hotspots around the country, but but it's, it's rising nationally. But there has not yet been a parallel spike in deaths. And I've just kind of been wondering about the science behind that, uh, what is contributing to the lag. And The Atlantic has come out with a helpful piece that explains both of those. And so uh, we'll include that in the show notes for everybody to peruse. Well, speaking of coronavirus, one of my lunchroom things is um, this particular family that I've been following because they had been in the news and things like that. A Broadway star, Nick Cordero, lost his battle to coronavirus this past week, which is just so sad. I don't know. This is this story has just gripped me. He was in the 
ICU for 95 days and his wife was his champion, his family. Um, I think it probably hits home because he is the same age as my husband. Their child is three months younger than mine. And then they got married just 20 days before us. And so I think it just, yeah, it just hits home because he had no pre-existing conditions. But I, I've been following his wife, Amanda Klutz, and just praying that, um, you know, she would be comforted and come to know the Lord, the one true God through this. But I have just been watching their stories and things like that because I can just be a sucker for entering into other people's tragedies. And it truly is tragic. And just another reminder to serve our neighbors and wear our masks and wash our hands. But on a funny note, I thought this was hilarious. I don't remember who shared this, but in Japan, there's the Fuji Q Highland amusement park and a video showed, (laughs) yeah, the video showed the chief executive and his corporate boss taking a ride on the park's number one attraction, the Fujiyama roller coaster. And they plunged 230 feet without so much as a peep. And and at the, they were both clad in masks and they were riding in complete silence. And it ended with the message, please scream inside your heart. And people on Twitter have been saying, this is the new <laughs> motto for 2020. <laughs> please scream That's inside exactly. your heart. And it just cracks me up. Exactly. Who came up? Can you just imagine the person that came up with that tagline being so proud of themselves? Please scream inside your heart. So a lot of us are screaming inside of our hearts. Some of us may be screaming out loud at home, but I think that is just the perfect, I agree with Twitter. That is the perfect motto for 2020. It wins the internet for 2020. That's right. That's right. Uh, We've learned a lot of things today, mostly that Lindsay has been spending an inordinate amount of time on Twitter lately. So we'll try to schedule an intervention for her sometime early next week. Uh, Speaking of things that Instagram. Got it. Uh, well, and here's a couple Amazon. things and that Amazon. are on my mind. Um, number one, our uh, executive vice president, Daniel Patterson, he posted something uh, in our Slack channels. We were talking amongst our staff. He just tried, he's a big fan of Bluebell ice cream, and apparently Bluebell has a new flavor called Milk and Cookies. And so if you like ice cream, want to recommend you check out Bluebell's Milk and Cookies ice cream. On a personal note, so we watched Hamilton. It was incredible. It didn't let me down at all. I've been listening to the soundtrack. It's awesome. And so if you haven't yet, you know, take an opportunity, you should check it out. But speaking of something else that's on Disney+, Plus, I sat down with my kids this week uh, and watched the the original Lion King movie with them. And it was just a special moment. And it just reminded me of, you know, being a child, but also just sitting there with my son and my daughter. And, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional roller coaster watching that movie. Uh, but it was a really special time for us. And we really, really enjoyed it. And so I just wanted to uh, throw that out there to say, hey, don't forget about all of the other treasures on Disney Plus and, you know, take some time to watch some throwback Disney movies uh, with your family. Uh, we um, also, they added on the same day they added Hamilton, the Mighty Ducks. And so if you haven't taken the opportunity Mighty to Ducks. check out the Mighty oh. Ducks, you can you can experience all three movies uh, with, you know, with your family or just with yourself. So anyway, that's on Disney Plus and it's worth checking out. Well, like we said at the top, we just want to say thanks so much for listening to the show every week and for all of the great feedback. Uh, If you haven't taken the opportunity to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app, we would really appreciate it. It helps other people uh, discover the podcast. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all of the things we talked about today in the show notes. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we look forward to being back next week with more content.